0: Welcome back, listeners, to Talking PFAS News. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. Today's episode of Talking PFAS News, we'll be talking about PFAS in cosmetics. And my special guest today is Boston attorney John Gardella. He's a shareholder at CMBG 3 Law in Boston, a law firm specialising in the regulatory, litigation and compliance aspects of numerous environmental and toxic tort issues. John is a member of the firm's PFAS team, which counsels clients on PFAS-related issues ranging from state violations to remediation litigation. Now, I interviewed John in episode 24, and it was a fabulous discussion. If you haven't heard that, I highly recommend you have a listen to the chat that I had with him about PFAS litigation. John is a regular contributor to the National Law Review, and he writes frequently on PFAS from a legal perspective. And it's a pleasure to have him on the podcast again today, talking with us about one of his latest articles that he has written for the National Law Review. This was published on the 21st of June, 2021, and the title of his article is PFAS in Cosmetics, financial and insurance companies on notice and in his opening remarks he says PFAS in Cosmetics has received steadily increasing media attention and with the publication of a June 15 2021 scientific study in the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology Letters The attention on this issue suddenly increased significantly at the scientific, media and legislative level. And in today's discussion with John, we'll be briefly discussing the study that he writes about in the National Law Review called Fluorinated Compounds in North American Cosmetics. And the author on that one is Graham Peasley. And I hope to get him onto the podcast at a later date to tell us much more detail about this study. The study tested a variety of cosmetic products from the United States and Canada for PFAS content and found PFAS present in over half of the products. On the same day that the study was published, the No PFAS in Cosmetics Act 2021 was introduced in the Senate. Now to today's discussion with John. You recently had another article published in the National Law Review on the 21st of June about PFAS in cosmetics. Can you please give the essence of what that article was about.
1: Sure. Well, my article takes a look at two very recent items in the United States that specifically target PFAS issues in cosmetics products. One was a scientific study that examined the presence of PFAS in over-the-counter cosmetics products, while the other was a piece of legislation passed at the federal level that seeks to ban PFAS in cosmetics. So I took a look at both of these items and then explained my thoughts on why this sort of bolsters something I've said for a a while now, which is the cosmetics industry in particular, is really one of the top three targets for litigation and even legislative issues in the United States.
0: Is that just in relation to PFAS?
1: I would say PFAS. However, the cosmetics yeah. industry has come under fire recently for other chemicals as well, yes.
0: Why do you place it in the top three, the cosmetic industry, as far as litigation?
1: Well, there's sort of a perfect storm happening in the United States anyway. There is an increased amount of scientific study going on, which with respect to PFAS, specifically with respect to cosmetics, as one of the most recent journal articles shows. And coupled with that, there has been at least one state in the United States, in fact, the biggest one, California, that's already passed a ban on PFAS and cosmetics. So The recent bill that was just passed at the federal level is sort of a second step in that way, but I see other states naturally sort of following along in the lines and passing their own legislation to try and ban PFAS and cosmetics in their own states. So you couple those two things with media presence, which of course picks up on these issues, and citizens become more and more aware of these things, and it sort of creates the opportunity for plaintiff's attorneys to realize this and delve a little more deeply into the science Behind that, and realize that they may have a class of citizens who potentially could bring lawsuits for personal injury with respect to PFAS and cosmetics.
0: Yes, and I imagine the use of cosmetics would be huge. Have they defined what cosmetics actually is, John?
1: No. You know, one of the things about the bill is that the bill at the federal level that I mentioned was that the term cosmetics is not yet defined. Uh, the bill, in fact, is only two sentences long. It essentially just says we need to ban. PFAS and cosmetics. And here's a definition of PFAS. And that's essentially all that it says.
0: Yes. I looked at the bill. It's only one page. It's very, very tiny. Very. Can you please name the bill that we're talking about today?
1: Yes, it's called the No PFAS and Cosmetics Act 2021.
0: Now that has only just been introduced into Congress, is that right? Am I saying that right?
1: Uh, into Congress, yes, one of the arms of Congress, yes, the Senate.
0: Okay, from the Senate, what has to happen for it to get passed?
1: Sure, well, for it to become a federal law, even in the Senate, it has to go through certain steps before it can get out of the Senate even. So it's going to be sent to a committee usually a human health or science-based committee for evaluation, and members of that committee will look at the language of the bill and almost surely beef it up since it is, as you said, so sparsely worded. And once the committee has edits that it's done, it sends it to the entire Senate for a vote. So if it were to pass the entire Senate with a vote, a majority vote, then it will go to the other arm of Congress, which is the House of Representatives. It will go through the same process there And if it were to pass the House of Representatives, then and only then would it go to the president's desk for signature.
0: Right. It's a bit of a long process and clearly they probably, in the beefing up or the editing of it, they will probably come up with the definition of cosmetics because it's very broad. Do they mean skin cream? Do they mean hand cream? Do they only mean makeup?
1: Absolutely. And you're right. They would have to define that, I believe, for it to pass all three of those or many of those steps that I just mentioned.
0: And will that act, if it gets passed, will it apply to the whole of the US?
1: It would. This is a federal bill, so it would apply to every state in the United States.
0: Okay, and what is the Act actually seeking to do? Just to ban all PFAS or just the long-chain PFAS?
1: It's seeking to ban all of them, in fact. But this is going to be an issue that I think is going to be debated because it has in other bills in the United States in terms of, well, are we going to literally ban all 7,000 plus PFAS that exist, or are we going to ban only a class of them? That's something that's been debated in the United States. It's been debated in the European Union as well. And I see it happening here as well.
0: Well, I've heard that that number has recently increased the US EPA. uh, I've talked to guests on the podcast that now say that that number sits around 9,000 now.
1: Oh, wow. Well, that is good to know. That's new information for me.
0: (laughs) Now, will this bill, the requirements of this bill, if it's passed, will it apply to imported cosmetics? I guess that's a bit hard to say. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think it would in theory. So, There's actually two words in the very brief bill that's been introduced that are sort of key, and that is the use of the words, quote, intentionally added PFAS. So the bill only applies to that. So let's say a manufacturer of cosmetics abroad uh, were to intentionally add PFAS and then send it to the United States. Yes, this bill would apply to them and they could not import those products or export those products to the United States. But if there are manufacturers that are not intentionally using PFAS in their cosmetics and they were to export them to the United States, then they would have arguments that the legislation does not apply to them because they are not intentionally adding the PFAS to the bill. So It's sort of two words in the bill that will be very critical and would be interesting to see what happens in the debates in the Senate and the House of Representatives to see what happens with that.
0: Absolutely, because as we know, with a lot of PFAS-containing products on the market, they're not required to label that they are PFAS-containing, and I, I think that's the same with cosmetics. Isn't that true?
1: That is true in the United States, yes. There is no requirement. Absolutely true.
0: I think that's true in many countries. Your article says concerns have also been raised regarding the absorption of PFAS into the bloodstream by way of tear ducts. Who has raised those concerns?
1: The uh, scientific community, and it's based in studies that have been done with respect to other chemicals. And in, in particular, I'm thinking of phthalates, chemicals that are found in a lot of shampoos, and soaps. The concern for many years with those chemicals has been that not only can they be ingested, you know, through the mouth by accident or through the skin, through so-called dermal exposure uh, or ingestion, but they can also be brought into the bloodstream of human beings by way of the tear ducts. And there have been studies that have been done with respect to the phthalate chemicals. And so the same concern is being raised now with respect to PFAS. There are some who believe that PFAS are even capable of being absorbed even more easily than some of these other chemicals. And so there's naturally concern about any sort of mechanism on the human body by which they can be absorbed. And tear ducts is is one of them.
0: In your article, you said you were writing about, well, you wrote about the PFAS Cosmetics Act bill that's just been introduced.
1: Yes, the bill was introduced in the uh, Senate on June 15th, 2021.
0: And then the second thing that influenced your article in the National Law Review was a recent study published in the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology Letters on the 15th of June, um, and that's called fluorinated compounds in North American cosmetics.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: So what was the key things that you pulled out of that article when you wrote your article?
1: Well, I think two things. One is just the number of the cosmetic products that are on the market, and I should say in the United States and Canada, since those were the products that were tested, for the majority of the types of products that were tested, lipsticks, foundations, facial products, and things like that, over 50% of them contained some degree of PFAS, which was you know, eye-opening to many. That's a fairly high percentage that's in those products. But the other part that was eye-opening to me in particular was that, you know, there was only one product out of all of them that were tested that actually contained information on the label that it contained some sort of PFAS in it. So 88% of the products that were tested had no such disclosure on on the product label whatsoever.
0: And on that one product that had a label, did it actually say PFAS or did it have the long chemical name that most people you know would not know is a PFAS
1: it had the long chemical name
0: so you have to know what you're looking for as a consumer whoever buys cosmetics I'm not going to say just women but whoever buys cosmetics they're going to be looking at the colors and their brands and into the glossy supermarkets or department stores they're not really going to have PFAS on their mind. Absolutely. The recent PFAS study examined 231 cosmetic products sold in the United States and Canada. And what did they find, John?
1: Well, they found that 52% of those products contained some degree of PFAS. And within the different Cosmetic product types, they broke it down into different categories and they revealed their percentages of how much PFAS were in each of those categories as well. For example, 62% of liquid lipsticks had some degree of PFAS, 63% of foundations had PFAS, and 58% of eye products had some degree of PFAS. Those are just some examples. There were others as well.
0: Yes, people can read about that in your article. When I looked at that. I couldn't actually believe the percentages. I thought that that's quite a high number of products that have PFAS in them.
1: Yes, I think that's what was surprising to many who read the article and why the media truthfully picked it up so much, especially in the United States, because the percentages were rather high. And I don't know if the scientists who conducted the study necessarily expected it to be that high or not. I'm not sure, but certainly to you know, citizens, those are high percentages and and numbers of concern.
0: Do you know why PFAS are added to the cosmetic products in the first place?
1: Oh, yes. They are added for a variety of reasons, but really to make the actual cosmetic product more smooth or to make your skin or your eyeliner appear more shiny. And then it's also added to cosmetic products for consistency and texture purposes.
0: So, John, why is PFAS? PFAS in cosmetics a concern?
1: Well I think it's a concern because as the study shows it's apparently in a, in a large percentage of the cosmetic products that are on the market and the study does not go into what types of PFAS, but there's sufficient enough concern in the scientific and the legislative, and even at the citizens' level, because cosmetics are so widely used and because they are applied directly onto your skin. And so the possibility of direct absorption into the bloodstream is relatively high. You know, second only to drinking water, which obviously is. A the most direct route that PFAS can get into the human body. Cosmetics is, is right up there uh, as the second most concern, mainly because you apply it to your skin, it can get in the tear ducts, and it can even indirectly get into your mouth for oral ingestion. So it's of concern for those reasons.
0: And we are talking about the fact that you know PFAS do bioaccumulate. They, they add, they compound in our bodies. They don't just go in and go out again. So that's a concern.
1: That's correct. Yes, absolutely.
0: The same day that that study was published was the same day that the No PFAS in Cosmetics Act bill was introduced. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: Interesting. Timing, isn't it?
1: It is. I don't know if it was coordinated, but it's certainly interesting timing.
0: Your article says that the cosmetic industry has a target on its back with respect to PFAS that will have impacts on the industry's involvement in litigation. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, it's two things, really. First and foremost, you know, the cosmetics industry will be under increased scrutiny for their labeling and what they're doing or not doing with respect to labeling and PFAS. Other companies and other industries have been brought into labeling lawsuits in the United States because they advertise themselves as one thing, but it can be argued that through either not disclosing anything or through sort of listing a long chemical name that tells us nothing, they're really not disclosing what they ought to be or, or what they're marketing that they truly are. But even beyond that, you know, the scientific community for sure, the media in the United States, and even now as we see with the legislative action, all of these sort of prongs of the United States interest in the PFAS subject are paying attention to the cosmetics industry with increased interest. So as that interest increases, I think there'll be more and more concern among the citizens, which will prompt the politicians to enact more and more regulatory bills at the state level. And as all of these things keep happening, the plaintiff's attorneys in the United States will realize that they have sort of a class of citizens who may have personal injury lawsuits Um, that they can bring for PFAS ingestion through cosmetics products.
0: Very, very interesting. What do cosmetic manufacturers and suppliers uh, need to now do to avoid litigation if this bill is passed?
1: You know, the first and foremost thing that we always advise any corporate client is that they need to figure out very quickly what is actually going into their products. And that may seem obvious, but it's not always so with respect to PFAS for the reason that we just discussed a few minutes ago. And that was, there are so many PFAS that are out there in the world and on the markets today, thousands of them. So, you know, the cosmetics industry needs to take a very, very close look at its supply chain, and it needs to figure out if it's actually using unintentionally any of these PFAS that are going into their products that will make them even more of a target in litigation. And once they figure that out, they need to go through compliance checks internally, figure out if they need to or would like to do research and development on their own to find substitutes. And I think they need to do their due diligence to determine whether or not there are uh, substitutes for the PFAS in their products and if their products can work equally as well without the PFAS. All of these things will be critical if they are brought into lawsuits as they are factors in any sort of judicial hearing or trial on these matters.
0: Very interesting, and you also mentioned in your article that several major retailers have publicly stated that they're taking a closer look at chemicals, including PFAS, in their cosmetics. Who who are they?
1: Well, there are a few of them, um, in a you know, ones as large as Walmart, uh, CVS, a pharmacy brand here in the United States, and even Amazon, and. You know, it's even beyond just cosmetics, but these companies have all indicated with respect to various types of products that they are taking a closer look at the chemical compositions um, and PFAS is right at the top of their list, given all the um, attention that PFAS is getting globally.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, it's good to see some retailers responding because uh, hopefully they'll lead the way. Um, one more question. I mean, if, if they're Cosmetic manufacturers are producing these cosmetics and unaware that PFAS might be in the products they're using. um, Could they get in trouble if the bill is passed for what enters the waste stream in the manufacturing process, the PFAS that enters the waste stream?
1: Yes, they could. I mean, the most natural way that would happen is if they were manufactured in the United States, the cosmetic products Um, There are potential environmental lawsuits that could be brought by states or in the future by the federal government um, if it's determined that cosmetic manufacturers are to some degree uh, polluting the environment with PFAS waste and contributing to soil pollution or or drinking water contamination. So that is certainly an avenue um, of litigation concern for cosmetics companies as well.
0: Thank you, John, for talking with me today in Talking PFAS News.
1: Thank you, Kayleen. Always a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode and as usual, you can catch the show notes for any extra additional information to today's discussion. The next episode of Talking PFAS News will be on Monday, the 12th of July. And at the end of that episode, I'll tell you when you can hear the next Talking PFAS feature episode. And please also, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast and also maybe giving it a share. Thanks again for listening. All information in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for reuse permissions, talkingpfas at gmail.com. See you next time.